everybody, welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Zach. And I'm Seth. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. We are. And we should give a shout out to Barry, who joined yes. us for the Indie Dev Lounge this past Wednesday. We had Barry on. He was talking a bit about Series 4 of Premium Edition Games. Go back and listen to that and uh, give Barry all the support with Premium Edition Games that you can. Yeah. By the time this episode comes out, you're still able to buy some copies in Series 4. So uh, If they're available. Yeah. If they're not sold out if yet. They're, yeah. If they're not sold out yet but yeah so check it out premiumeditiongames.com and that's going to be our our shout out and our thanks to barry uh barry's a, a great friend of the podcast as is steve we've seen a lot of as guests is steve we've had today. a lot of guests yeah yeah and steve's uh things should still be going on too yes uh the nest pro yeah the nest pro kickstarter which they did make their goal but obviously you can still back it on kickstarter and the more you back it it will reach some uh stretch goals which are always fun you know stretch goals often mean that they can do a bit more than they had thought with the money that they get so uh go throw some support toward both Steve and Barry and everyone that we've had at the Indie Dev Lounge. Just support everybody. Just support everybody. Every single person we've ever talked to, support them. Go find people that we knew when we were young and go just give them $20 bills and say, Seth and Zach sent me to you. Preferably with a black spot on it so they think that they're being hunted by pirates. Anyway, Seth, what have you been recently playing? So I think last time I was recently playing Shadow Tactics Blades of the Shogun and I said that I was trying to be it because I wanted to play the DLC, the standalone expansion pack, which is uh, Shadow Tactics Blades of the Shogun, Ico's Choice. And let me tell you, I beat the expansion pack. And I beat also Shadow Tactics. So I beat the original game and I beat the expansion pack. The original game took me some time. It's funny because there's not, I wouldn't say there's that many missions, but taking the expansion pack, for an example, the expansion pack, you get six missions, three core missions, and three, I would say, light missions. Like, they're not super difficult. But then there's, like, the three core missions that are, like, similar to what the the original gameplay plays as. It still took me 14 hours to play through it. So, like, it wasn't not insignificant amount of time. So, uh, yeah, so Shadow Tactics plays as the Shogun, Ico's Choice. You uh, revisit with the the five characters in the main game, uh, Mugen, Hayoto, Aiko, Yuki, and Takuma. I'm not going to go into details and regarding them that much. I'll just say that the game is set in Edo, Japan, and you're working for the Shogun. And Mugen's a samurai, and he's the leader, and he obviously takes his duty to the Shogun seriously, and the rest of them are in it for their own reasons. But Aiko's choice comes up because it actually takes place during the first game, so it takes place between some missions. And the, the game does a good job at recapping the first game, and not revealing the twist ending of the first game and the first game's twist that game has a really i think a really good ending Ico's choice also has a pseudo twist not as i would say gut-wrenching as the twist on the first game but Ico's choice was still uh still has a pretty good twist but it's about uh Ico's old mentor sensei it appears to have been hired by the big bad of the original game and you guys need to essentially disrupt her plans because she kidnapped some members of the party and you have to rescue them and then disrupt her plans and 
then ultimately take care of her because that's what the game is generally about because you're playing a group of assassins so it's a it's a fun game uh if you played shadow tactics blades of the shogun i would say if you want more of the same pick up Ico's choice because it's great if you have not played shadow tactics blades of the shogun and you are interested in playing a stealth strategy game pick up shadow tactics give it a try it's a good fun fit if you want a similar-ish game and you don't like necessarily the historical japanese setting uh, you can also play Desperados, I-I-I, which is a, I would say is a pseudo-stealth strategy game. I say pseudo because there's a lot more guns in the Wild West than there are in historical Japan. So, Zach, what have you been playing? Seth, recently I've been playing Tunic, which uh, came out in March of 2022. And it's a game that was created by the Tunic team, which I'm pretty sure consists of one person, and was published by Finji. Seth and I actually bought a copy of Tunic at PAX, so we both have Tunic, and I think we've both been playing Tunic, but I've been playing it pretty recently. In Tunic, you are a small little fox, and you go on a big adventure, and you fight some monsters that include giant bosses. It's a hack-and-slash-style game, more similar to that of, like, Zelda in terms of the gameplay play and the puzzle structure but it does have some bosses and stuff that you have to fight and uh, various other type of gameplay mechanics that make it unique um so I, I think it's a pretty fun game i'm enjoying it so far i'm pretty early into it i got the sword and i'm kind of wandering around clearing out these uh hedges that i couldn't destroy before because i only had a stick but um i do really like the aesthetic of the game uh i especially like the little character who looks like a little fox wearing a tunic uh, he is very cute and uh, i do enjoy fun cute games but so that's tunic it is available on steam i, I recommend it I, I think it's a great game to pick up if you want to enjoy a game kind of like zelda but with uh, a bit more of an indie flair to it fun yeah i have been playing a little bit of tunic as well and uh, i have been enjoying it i do I have, you, you play it with a controller uh, i actually been playing it using my mouse and keyboard which i uh, think is you know it works pretty well i probably would prefer it with the controller I think it would play better with a controller, but I didn't have a controller next to me when I started playing it a few nights ago, and I was too lazy to go get up and get one, so... That's fair. And uh, it is a hack and slash game, which does nicely segue into today's episode, which is about another hack and slash game. Uh, a game that I want everyone... Stay a while and listen. Because today we're talking about Diablo. That's right. Yes. We've talked about Diablo a lot as games that we have either recently played or games that we think or, or as a game that we think is very good when we did our top 10 games. In our top 10 games episode, we did talk a lot about our memories of Diablo. I know Seth had more memories of Diablo than I did. One of my earliest memories of Diablo, though, that I'll share again, was I was staying over a friend's house, a family friend's house. I don't think I was staying the night. I think I was just there because our mother was out with friends or something something like that. She needed someone to look after me because I was a child and unable to fend for myself. This family friend had a computer and on the computer they had Diablo. And I was aware that Diablo was a Blizzard game because I saw the CD said Blizzard and I associated Blizzard games with Warcraft because I was a Warcraft fan. So I booted up Diablo and I was about to play it and I was in like right at the beginning when my friend's mother came downstairs, saw me at the computer and said, no, time for bed. 
and I had to close Diablo and go to bed. So I didn't play Diablo that night, and I later would play Diablo much older. I, I was recently playing Diablo uh, a few episodes ago. I talked about it. Uh, Seth, do you want to share any of your memories of Diablo? Yeah. Um. So I think my first initial memories of Diablo are watching other people play Diablo, and we were over some friends of the family, possibly the same friends of the family that you saw at Diablo. Maybe not. Maybe some other friends. We were a friendly family and had lots of friends of families, and they were playing Diablo and they got to the part that I think everybody has gotten to the butcher <sighs> fresh meat and scared the crap out of me and <laughs> after that I, I went back and revisited Diablo when I was just a little older but Diablo was still popular and I played through it and uh, I didn't get very far in it because it also was still a scary game. I've been playing through it recently. It's currently my go-to portable game. I have a port of it since I own Diablo through good old games. I was able to port it to my retro game console that I have and my RG351V. Diablo runs really, really smooth on it. And I've been uh, I've been playing it on the go. I think I played a little bit at PAX and uh, I've been just playing this, my, uh, my fighter. I don't even remember what his name was. I think it's something silly. I think there's a photo of you sitting on the train when we were heading toward PAX and it is a photo of you playing Diablo. You can't see uh, that yes, you're playing Diablo. You can't but... see the Diablo, but I am playing Diablo. So as always, we'll get into a bit of the history of Diablo. Really, when you think of Diablo, I bet everyone out there is thinking of Justice League, right? That's what you should think of. The reason why Justice League and Diablo share a bit of a connection is because there was an amazing fighting game called Justice League Task Force, which was being created by one of the designers of what would become Diablo, David Brevik. And while he was working on Justice League Task Force, he got the idea for Diablo. David, at the time, was president of Condor Games and was working primarily with a company called Silicon and Synapse and another company called Sunsoft on bringing Justice League Task Force to the market. Justice League Task Force is an amazing game. Yeah, I think I mentioned that. No, no. Like, we rented it and played it. It was yeah. great. Yeah, this is a good game. I haven't played it in forever. A, it is a legit didn't game. We put, didn't we start playing it a bit at Retro World Expo and we stopped and we were like, let's play NBA Jam instead? So Justice League Task Force can get boring pretty quick, but it is a great game. Anyway, continue on with your story. Yes. Anyway, Condor Games uh, was actually in charge of the Sega Genesis slash Mega Drive release of Justice League Task Force. That was the copy that Seth and I rented. And uh, Silicon Synapse worked on the SNES release. Now, by the time Justice League Task Force had finished, Silicon Synapse had changed their name to Blizzard Entertainment. Around the time of this change, David was working on this idea that he had for a game that would soon become Diablo. In his original vision, he was basing the game on roguelikes, um, which we have gone into depth about before. Roguelikes um, are games like Rogue, or uh, ZZT has some roguelike elements to it, or can have roguelike elements to it. But he wanted to make a game that was faster in terms of progression than what previous roguelikes had to offer. And he also wanted the game to be a game that players could get into more quickly. So you didn't have to start the game and kind of slog through leveling up your character before you got good you can just get right into the game and just start fighting monsters he was apparently also inspired by nhl 94 because nhl 94 has predetermined class structures making it very similar to some future rpg games <laughs> david took this great rpg game of nhl 94 and used that as the basis for diablo and he wanted the game to have these predetermined class structures based 
on traditional character classes that you might see in other role-playing games. And he wanted to do this in order to not restrict the player uh, in terms of the items or the uh, weapons that they use. Um, so you could really use any weapon slash item in the game. You would have to spec to use it. So right, yeah. You could use a sword as a wizard, but you would have to get your strength up high enough to wield it. You could use magic as a fighter, but you'd have to bring your magic up. And we'll get into that when we get into the gameplay. But because of that, it doesn't restrict the players. You could theoretically Correct. spec a strong wizard with a sword. Yep. He also wanted the game to be different from other roguelikes um, in the sense that the looting structure was a bit more expansive. Often in early roguelikes, an uh, enemy might drop one or two items. Uh, in this, they drop a lot of items sometimes they drop like hundreds and hundreds of gold pieces just pouring from skeletons i feel like part of the charm of diablo is doing the truck back essentially killing all the monsters that you can till your your entire backpack is full of loot and mm, then yeah. running back to the town having everything identified and sell and then you see whatever wart has and then head back down into the catacombs to continue on the your merry way now there's also influence from games like the legend of zelda because it had a fast-paced action. Furthermore, there was influence from Doom because it had a really cool UI. Now, the game's name came from Mount Diablo, which is a mountain in the Diablo range of Contra Costa County in Northern California, which is the area where uh, David grew up in. So he was intimately familiar with the Diablo name and was like, ah, I should call it Diablo. The game began development around the time that it was being pitched to various publishers. So they were working on building this game while trying to sell it, which is not always the best practice. Yeah, because you'll often have potentially empty promises when you pitch a game that has not been finished yet. Um, there has been some infamous developers, even recently, who have promised things that have not come to fruition. Now, it's reported that they pitched the game as taking, quote, the randomness of games like Moira, NetHack, and Rogue and bringing them into the 1990s. So uh, classical roguelike games and making them modernize. Uh, they were mostly turned down, largely due to the fact that at the time, role-playing games were not selling super hot. And action role-playing games, you had like action games, you had maybe some adventure games, and then you had role-playing games. You didn't necessarily have this blend that Diablo was working on. For example, Zelda doesn't have really a role-playing aspect to it. It's an equipment-gathering game. You're not leveling up. Yeah. Uh, in Zelda 2, you are. That's true. That is true. However, I think in the 90s, we were looking at the SNES. Bit more similar to first game. Regardless, RPGs were not selling. So nobody wanted to take a risk on an RPG. Around this time, 1994, Blizzard Entertainment had released Warcraft, Orcs and Humans. Condor Games, who were still pitching Diablo, noticed that Blizzard seemed to have similar interests. So they pitched the game to Blizzard. And Blizzard offered to work with them. Blizzard wanted two things. Things, though the game needed to be real time and they needed to add multiplayer and david was actually hesitant to change up the style of the game which at the time was turn-based so the condor team voted whether or not they were going to change the game to a real-time combat versus a turn-based combat and the vote was in blizzard's favor so they began working on this plan reportedly on the friday that they had took that vote david was going to go to the blizzard team and say we need an extension on this game in order 
order to convert it into a real-time combat game versus the turn-based engine we've already developed. However, before he let them know that they needed extra time, he apparently sat down and just started working. And overnight, he was able to convert the entire game into a new engine that could have the real-time combat that they were looking for. And he presented this to the rest of the Condor team that following Monday. Uh, he was worried it was going to take them a few extra months, maybe, to make this game to Blizzard's wishes, and he did it in less than a weekend. <laughs> the game's graphics now, around this time, were still early in development, and one of the plans was that they're going to be claymation style, similar to Clay Fighters, which I would say sounds like a fantastic game. And if anyone out there wants to make a Diablo that is done in Clay Fighter style, please do. That sounds so good. They opted to change the game, though, to a 3D isometric style, which I think fits Diablo well. However, just imagine the alternate universe of Clay Fighter style Diablo. Now, the game continued development through 1996 when Condor Games was acquired by Blizzard. Blizzard renamed their primary location in Irvine, California to Blizzard South, and Condor's location was renamed Blizzard North. Blizzard didn't want to rely on the existing online services for matchmaking, so there were plenty of online services available for games at that time for matchmaking. However, Blizzard did not want to take the risk of relying on another company for their services, so they opted to develop their own. And around this time, they would develop what become the basis of Battle.net, or Battle.net, whatever you want to call it. Reportedly, Blizzard South came to check on the status of Diablo and to figure out whether the game's multiplayer code could be incorporated into this early version of Battle.net. However, they learned there was no multiplayer code at all. That'd be a problem. Yes. So Blizzard South sent their employees to go work on the game's multiplayer code in the kind of remaining months that they had before it was due to be released. And now I want to remind everyone that Condor Games promised to give Diablo multiplayer code when Blizzard said that they would publish the game. So I imagine Blizzard was not too happy to learn that they had not even started on any multiplayer code. You know what? At the end of the day, Blizzard ultimately owns the Diablo franchise and based on the amount of money it made for them i think that they can they can get over not having the multiplayer oh, i'm sure they have gotten over it but i can see back then they were probably pretty grumpy so blizzard would go on to release diablo in 1997 however this is disputed by david who says the game was released in 1996 this dispute is due to the fact that blizzard sent a press release on january 3rd to announce the game's availability in stores but according to david the game was already available in some retailers in december of 1996 not in 1997. In any case, the game was released on a CD-ROM, and the CD-ROM was required to play the full release. However, on the CD-ROM, there was a shareware version that was a truncated version of the game that was available to be played without the CD. So in case you were lazy, you could play Diablo Spawn, which was what the shareware version was called, or more than likely what it was used for was so that you can bring Diablo to your friend's house and spawn copies of Diablo onto their computers so that they could play it whether their parents knew they were playing it or not. <laughs> Perfect. Now, the gameplay of Diablo. People who are familiar with hack and slash games are likely familiar with Diablo. But for those of you who are not familiar with Diablo, it's a genre of game called an action role-playing game. To remind our listeners, that means that there's generally a combat system in place that is real-time and relies somewhat on the player's skill, which, in Diablo's case, is how fast you can click your mouse. Uh, the role-playing part comes into play since the player can level up their character as they progress through the game. 
game, assigning points into the abilities and such that they want to increase. The game is primarily mouse-driven, though spells and quick actions would be bound to keyboard shortcuts. Throughout the game, the player will encounter loot, new spells, friendly townsfolk, and unfriendly dungeon folk. Speaking of dungeons, the dungeons are all procedurally generated, though each level has guardrails, so they are generally created in the right theme. A procedural generation typically means, though, that each dungeon will be different. The dungeon you play through won't necessarily be identical to the dungeon that your friend plays, or even you might play if you played the game at a different date. Um, it might look slightly different. Because it was guardrailed, it didn't mean you would, like, enter the the first dungeon you automatically be in hell it was properly set so that each each level was designed the way they're supposed to be procedural generation is really cool it does lead to some funny things like when i was playing diablo i found a room on the first floor that was filled with skeletons and had nothing inside of it besides skeletons so those are funny things that can happen in procedural generation it's just a room of skeletons sometimes it's a room of just gold yeah sometimes it's i just got gold. one of those it was just a locked room opened it up full of gold this one was not locked but it was full of skeletons <laughs> so well it wasn't mine wasn't locked either but another example of how the generation was guard railed is that the uh, catacombs for example were long hallways with closed off rooms while the caves tend to be more free roaming so that's another way that there would be um, some kind of specific settings almost it's almost like when you look at minecraft and how it generates biomes like certain biomes will generate differently compared to other biomes but they'll still be procedurally generated the game does have quests to help drive the story along. However, only two are mandatory, the last two. However, each quest will offer some type of powerful reward to help the player progress through the story. So Diablo has three character classes. However, it's only the way that the initial attributes are skewed per character. For example, your sorcerer was going to be skewed towards magic. The attributes that you would have available are strength, dexterity, vitality, and magic. And I believe they add more attributes in later iterations of the Diablo game as the game gets more complex. And uh, they add more classes that get more special abilities. But in Diablo 1, each class can kind of mimic each other. Uh, so if you want, it's to, to really just let you play the way you want to play. So for example, you can have a strong sorcerer or a magical fighter. Uh, in fact, a lot of my time playing the multiplayer, I saw a lot of fighters that were very, very magical. Now the three classes are warrior, rogue, and sorcerer. The warrior is a strong melee character who has more health than the other classes and can repair broken items, which is useful since your items will break. The rogue is better at ranged weapons and can disarm traps, which is useful because there are going to be traps. The rogue can also use more magic from the beginning, more than the warrior, but less than the wizard. It's kind of like a, a balance class. The sorcerer is physically the weakest of them all, but can learn more spells and more powerful spells, and can also recharge spell staff, which is a useful thing to be able to do, since spell staffs will allow you to cast more spells, which is really the, the objective is just the chain lightnings that go on in Diablo. In Hellfire, the expansion, the class of the monk is introduced, who is uh, also a skilled melee character and uses a staff as a weapon. There are also hidden characters that were unfinished but can be hacked out of the game and be able to be played, and that is the bard and the barbarian. The bard uses the rogue character model, and the barbarian uses the fighter character model. The monk has its own unique character model. The bard is able to dual wield, and the barbarian uses two-handed axes in the event that you want to play a barbarian before Diablo 2. 
Now, there was also multiplayer where people could PvP or PvE, depending on what they wanted to do. Players could connect through a manner of ways. They could directly connect to the other person's computer. They can go over a modem. They could use an IPX network, or they can go through battle.net. The game didn't really have any anti-cheat method that was established in later games, so that if you cheated, it would stop you. Diablo, you could just cheat in multiplayer. In fact, there's a fun story. This wasn't really me cheating in multiplayer, but it was me being kind of a horrible human. I would pretend to be judges for duels. So back in the beginning of Diablo, there would people there would be people who would want to duel each other and they would want to say like I'm better at you, I can duel you. Okay, so let's get connected. And they would be having these conversations in BattleNet. So they'd be going back and forth being like I can duel you better. So they would be like, "Yeah." And I'll be like, "Oh, I will witness this duel for you." And I would sign up to be the judge of the duel. So then, we would all join this one game session and I would watch them duel each other. And they were usually very powerful characters destroying each other. And one of them would inevitably die. I would then go over to the weakened person who was just barely won a duel and I would kill them because they were weakened. And then I would take everyone's stuff and then quit the game because Diablo had a weird system where items gained in multiplayer stayed on your character. So then you could take that character into other games and any item that was left on the ground when the game was turned off would go away permanently. So I would essentially get a bunch of high-level stuff and be able to gold farm almost stuff off of people through horrible practice of betrayal. Now, Diablo takes place primarily beneath the town of Tristam. Tristam is this tiny town that has a few very interesting people that you'd encounter, such as Deckard Kane, who is where the whole stay a while listen quote comes from. There's also Wirt, who's the guy you can sell stuff to. Uh, there's also a drunk man. There's just a lot of colorful people in Tristam. Underneath Tristam is where you spend probably 99% of your time in Diablo uh, as you descend into the depths of the town's dungeons, which are under the church, um, and then you fight your way through various undead and other demons until you reach hell itself. Along the way, as mentioned, you made a colorful cast of bad guys that you must kill. This includes some unique monsters, such as the Butcher, who is a unique variant of the Overlord monsters that you encounter. So you encounter these creatures called Overlords. The Butcher is essentially a reskin of the Overlord, and made a little extra stronger and encountered much earlier and he is not however a boss the bosses in the game there's only a few of them um, there's the skeleton king who is a king who is a skeleton he wears a crown and he has a sword he's the skeleton king then there's the defiler which is this ancient bug-like creature who rules over an insect colony called the festering nest there is na cruel which is a demon who was imprisoned by diablo and who has returned to plague the town there is lazarus who was an an ambassador from the Zacharim Church. However, he was corrupted by evil. And then lastly, and not leastly, there is Diablo, the Lord of Terror, the younger brother to Baal and Mephisto, who you encounter in the later games. And Diablo is the one who has enslaved mankind with violent images of bloodlust and terror. And he's nasty. He is nasty. He's also very large. I think it's funny that the Butcher, out of all of these guys, I think the Butcher is one of my favorite non-bosses who actually he evolves he becomes a boss in diablo 3 they actually give him um, boss status good job butcher the butcher also shows up in warcraft 3 in um frozen throne you encounter an abomination which are these like stitched together creatures who has like super health and he's massive he takes up like most of the area he's in and he's been named the butcher and when you enter his chamber he says ah fresh meat now to do the numbers blizzard initially forecasted sales for diablo at a nice cool 100,000 units 
units, and this would be what it would be if everything went according to plan. However, Diablo did receive some media coverage uh, prior to release, and the hypometer just started going up. So they had to readjust the forecast for sales to 500,000 copies, and this would originally be scaled over a period of time to stagger the release to not overwhelm either side of production, manufacturing or retail. However, pre-orders would continue to go up to surpass 450,000 units globally by December 17th of 1996. They had to quickly ramp up production in order to keep up with the demand, which is really not a bad problem to have. And PC data sale charts for January 1997 has Diablo launching straight into the number one spot, which it held for three months, to be eventually pushed down by X-Wing versus TIE Fighters in uh, May of that year. It would remain second when it would then ultimately get pushed down to fifth and finally leaving the top 10 sales chart in October. Worldwide sales would surpass 500,000 units by April of 97, 750,000 units by June, and 1 million by the end of November. By the end of the year, 670,155 copies were sold in the U.S. market alone, and the game held the place for the highest selling computer title for six months in 1997. PC Data would go on to declare it is the fourth best selling computer game of 1997. Some of the success was based on the old school retail mentality when it came to game releases. Release the games right before the holiday season. You want to get it in November. That's kind of like your sweet spot of release because that's when people buy games. Diablo was released December 27th, which broke the norm and dominated the market since there weren't any other competition around. And so that's kind of why Diablo was able to be so successful because it was the only new game out. By 1998, it remained in the top 20 charts before finally dropping in April. It reappeared on the top 20, however, in June, and returned to the top 10 in July, rising to number 3 by August. Some game reviewers at the time, like Jason Ocamp of Computer Game Strategy Plus, compared it to other titles like Myst, which was also considered one of these perennial games where it would sell really well for a bunch of months, drop down a bit, drop off the, the charts, and then suddenly reappear. <laughs> the game finished in 11th place of 1998 with sales of 354,961 units or over $9.57 million in revenue for the US market. The same year, it received gold from the Verband der Unterhaltung Software Deutschland, or VUD, meaning it reached over 100,000 sale units across Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. Globally, the game reached about 2 million units in September of 1998. The game continued to sell well in the US, with 1.17 million copies sold in 1999 and reaching the top 20 charts again in the year 2000. The game broke 2 million sales by mid-2000 and reached 2.3 million sales in January of 2001. In total, it would sell around 2.5 million units as of mid-2001. Game also scored exceptionally well. It earned 94 out of 100 from Metacritic. GameSpot gave it a 9.6 out of 10. Game Rankings gave it an 89%. And NextGen gave it an 80%. Because NextGen apparently did not want to get on the hype train. They gave it an 80%. That's like barely a pass. Jeez. Now, as evident by the numbers, the game sold very, very well. And well enough that it spawned a franchise. Uh, an expansion pack for the first game, Hellfire, was uh, released quickly after the game in 1997 and the first game was the, also then ported to the PlayStation and the Mac OS in 1998. Uh, Hellfire I believe also opened up a passage to hell in the town that you could go to to start 
the Hellfire expansion pack. So you did not have to play the regular game. So you could just play the X pack. It was just like this big rift in the town that you could just enter and go into Hellfire. The people of Tristan must have loved that. The people of Tristan are mostly drunk. The sequel, Diablo 2, was released in 2000. An expansion pack called Lord of Darkness was released in 2001. And in 2012, another sequel, Diablo 3, was released with the DLC pack called Reaper of Souls, releasing in 2014, and another called Rise of the Necromancer in 2017. In 2021, Diablo 2 was then remastered as Diablo 2 Resurrected for Modern Systems. A free-to-play game called Diablo Immortal is due out in June 2022 that nobody wants. And there is also a fourth game, Diablo 4, that is currently due out in 2023, which everybody wants. Beyond the games, Diablo has also spawned novels, comics, merchandise, and characters from the game have appeared in titles like Hero of the Storm, which is Blizzard's overhyped MOBA, and they have also been referenced in titles like World of Warcraft and, as I mentioned, in Warcraft 3. There are plenty of games that also took inspiration from Diablo, uh, such as Divine Divinity, Torchlight, Path of Light, the uh, Minecraft Dungeons game, and more recently, Hades. Hades is, I mean, even its name, like, it's the Lord of the Underworld. You can definitely tell where the inspiration came. And that, my brother, is Diablo. That is that is Diablo. That is Diablo. Now we're going to get on to the Byway Pass, the Bawupa. And I'm going to go first for the Byway Pass. Zach, this game will require you to play a job. And it's a job that you don't even have. You start from the outskirts and you work your way in. It's a serious, dangerous job. Do you want to know more about the game? Yes, I do. It's Repo Man. You, I thought you already had Repo Man for me. I did not have Repo Man already for you. We're going to take a brief break while I look up Repo Man and try to remember if Seth already picked this for me. And we're back. So Seth did not pick Repo Man. He's picked games similar to Repo Man before. Um, it took me a moment. But uh, Repo Man is a game being developed by Akira Studios and published by Gamesbox and Ultimate Games SA. Uh, and it is due out coming soon. It doesn't have a date. Repo Man is one of those games that Seth and I like to pick for each other every now and then that has like a weird focus on a particular subject and you like go about your job and then weird things will happen happen or it just gets ridiculous from there uh in this game in particular you play as a debt collector whose job is to repo things that people that owe you money need to have repossessed so you play as the titular repo man and sometimes these interactions do not go as well as one might hope uh, as people typically don't like it when people come and take their things so sometimes you have to fight the people that you are repossessing their op- items i'm gonna be honest i'm definitely probably gonna pass on this game uh it just doesn't really interest me it's it looks like it could be fun for like streamers maybe to kind of get the like the weird factor down with some of this gameplay but it's just it does not interest me in the slightest it's an impressive looking game in terms of the the graphics it doesn't actually look half bad but it just isn't it's just it's not really impressive to me now that i'm saying it doesn't look half bad i'm pretty sure one of those houses is literally the house from phasmophobia i think i've said that about another game too that we looked at that was a similar game the same house so yeah i'm gonna pass on repo man seth 
but cool. maybe you won't pass on this game. Uh, so in this game, Seth, it's kind of a unique game. This game, you are going to solve puzzles. It's kind of an adventure game of sorts. And you do this by a mechanic that involves building something brick by brick. Are you interested? I think I know what it is, but yes, feel free to tell me what it is. This game, Seth, is Lego Brick Tales. It's due out in 2022, developed by Clockstone and published by Thunderful Publishing. We'll be taking a short break while I do some lookup. All right, we're back. So yes, as Zach mentioned, it's coming. Uh, Brick Tales, Tales T A L E S, uh, is coming out in 2022, being developed by Clockstone, and it, they have the license for Lego, and it looks like it's going to be a different Lego game involving essentially solving puzzles in dioramas with Legos and making sure they don't fall apart. We did see it at PAX. I am super excited about it because the sacrilege here, I'm not the biggest fan of the Lego games by Traveler's Tales. That's fine. The last Lego game I really liked was uh, Lego Island 2. Yeah, I like Lego Island 1. But uh, Brick Tales looks like it may be something that really breaks my don't buy Lego games streak because it looks like the type of Lego game that I want to play. I also really like the Lego game with the the rocks. Oh yeah, Rock Raiders. So anyway, that's going to be our Diablo episode. We're uh, available on all the podcasting applications so you can listen to us on things such as Spotify, Stitcher, and iTunes. You can also reach out to us and send us feedback by sending us an email at classicgaming brothers at gmail.com you can follow us on all of our social medias our facebook instagram and twitch are at classic gaming brothers and our twitter is cg brothers pod and you can always look forward to a new episode in your feed on sunday and uh zach am i missing anything don't play games like my brother and don't play games like my brother i've been zach and i've been seth we've been the classic gaming brothers that's That's right. right